Our text for today's message comes from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So far, the reading of God's word. Wondering how many of you remember the little song you see up on the screen. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things just does not belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the others by the time I finish my song? You ever hear that before? None of you watch Sesame Street? <laughs> well, it's from a segment on Sesame Street. It was designed to teach uh, viewers how to understand the way things relate to one another. Uh, that the one blue square, for example, is different from the three red triangles. It's kind of a necessary part of a child's cognitive development that they kind of learn to sort and categorize things. But there is a problem when we sort and categorize. We learn this lesson a little too well, and sometimes it shapes the way we perceive every aspect of reality. I mean, all through life, we tend to look at each situation with discriminating eyes. We ask ourselves, what doesn't belong here? How are we different? How are they different? I mean, some people spend their entire life sorting everything this way, always looking for the difference between them and others. I'll give you an example. If I showed you three quarters and a nickel and asked you if the group was the same or different, what would you say? Three quarters and a nickel, the same or different. Now, some of you would say, well, they're different because each coin has a different value. But others of you might say, no, they're all the same. They're legal tender. You could buy stuff with them. Or if I showed you an American coin, a Canadian coin, and an Indian coin, are they the same or are they different? Now, some of you say, well, they're all different. It's not even close. They don't even come from the same country. Others probably would say, no, you know, they're all the same. I mean, it's money. You can spend it somewhere in this world. Now, throughout life, you and I are constantly faced with opportunities to sort things according to the difference or according to their similarity. And there are times when uh, one is needed and times when the other is not needed. There's no question about it. But I believe that the more we learn to sort according to similarities rather than differences, the more impact we as Christ followers can make in this world. Now, we're in week chapter two, week two of uh, Make Your Mark, and we're going to focus in on some eight values over a couple of weeks uh, that's going to enable us not only as individuals but as a church to live in such a way that we can actually make a dent in the universe. Now, if you can remember two weeks ago, back that far, 
we talked about Peter. And Peter summarized the life of Jesus by reminding us that Jesus went around doing good because God was with him. We talked about how we need to live our lives with that same purpose, that we do good to other people at every opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to maybe build a bridge between us and others over which Jesus can ultimately walk. Today we're going to take a look at the second essential uh, to making our mark, and that's the value of just finding common ground with people. This might actually be considered kind of an evangelistic message or how to evangelize people. Or to say it another way, we're going to talk a little bit about the power of Christian unity. Now, in the early days of the church, and Jesus died about uh, 30 A.D., and somewhere between 30 to 100 A.D., a, a phenomenon took place in the church that has not often been repeated ever since. In fact, if you go back, and I, I, I suggest you just go back today and read Acts chapter 2, and read Acts chapter 4, and you're going to see the church living in community to the extent that people, as I read in the text today, were selling their possessions, they were sharing proceeds with others, they were sharing everything so that everybody had enough. Now, there have been some people over the years who said, maybe that's the blueprint for the church, that's the way we should live, kind of in a communistic kind of community. But I, I don't really see this as an exact blueprint for churches to duplicate. Actually, there's no other New Testament church that did this. But I think today God is not calling us to move into a commune somewhere, but he does call on us to follow the example set by the early Christians in their attitudes toward one another. Now, I just read to you from Acts chapter 4, but I want to zero in on just one phrase. It comes from Acts chapter 4, 32. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Could that be said of us? That we are all one in heart and mind. You see, in a very short period of time in the early church, they were able to turn the entire city of Jerusalem upside down, and they grew by thousands. Now, today, most churches grow by addition or subtraction. They add a few here, they subtract a few there. In the early days of the church, they grew not by addition or subtraction, they grew by multiplication. They grew by hundreds each week, by thousands over periods of months. And this didn't happen because they were always bickering or doing battle with one another. It happened because, what? They were of one heart and mind. And guess what? People noticed. See, when a church, any church, let's make a difference whether it's St. Mark's, whether it is First Lutheran, whatever church it may be, uh, when you live in unity... As a Christ-following family, the world begins to pay attention. There was an early Christian writer by the name of Tertullian. Uh, He once quoted a pagan official as having said this about Christians. He said, quote, look at how much they love each other, end of quote. See, that's exactly what should be said about us, individually, collectively, as a church. Because Jesus himself says, you see the passage in John chapter 13, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. How? If you love one another. Some of you may remember what used to be a contemporary Christian song. They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. Maybe you remember singing that in Walter League or whatever your youth league was. See, there's power in unity. 
when we build a, a foundation on a common ground with others in this church, in our personal life, in our business life, and we build relationships on base of common and seek to live in unity with one another, you begin to increase your impact with other people. And this morning, I just want to take a look at this text and suggest three different ways we can strengthen ourselves in unity, three ways in which we can find common ground. And the first of these is this. Just focus on how we're the same before we start thinking about how we are different. Now, it's not that we don't pretend that differences don't exist or that differences shouldn't be resolved. It's that we ought to first identify our common bond. I mean, that means when you look at three quarters and two dimes and a nickel, the first thing you should notice is what they have in common. They're all money. If you got enough of it, they kind of jingle in your pocket. They're all U.S. money. They all have heads and tails. They all work in a parking meter or a vending machine or whatever. Now, what if, what if we did that with people? I mean, our tendency often is to sort people out according to how they are different and different from ourselves. And the more different we can make them sometimes, it seems the easier it is to diminish them or even dislike them. Now, I spent a lot of time living in Chicago, up in that area, and I find it odd that people in Chicago either love the Chicago Cubs or the Chicago White Sox, but they don't love both of them. And I say this based on people I know from the Windy City, so I'm kind of speaking generally. If you love one team, you're almost duty-bound to hate the other team. Now, I always wondered, why can't people from Chicago love both teams? I mean, it's not like there's any risk that they'll ever play each other in the World Series. So why can't you just celebrate by cheering for the Cubs in the National League and the Sox in the American League? Now, I also see this in the Christian community. Several years ago, quite a number of years ago, I met a man who was very involved in his local church. He would be what you would probably call a committed believer, and so we shared that in common. But he did not think much of the church I pastored. In fact, he thought even less of the denomination my church was part of. And as a result, he told me one time he didn't really think much of me for belonging to that church or part of that denomination. In fact, uh, he thought I was somewhat of a heretic. Now, I've got to tell you that both of our churches, I would have considered to be somewhat conservative evangelical churches, but that wasn't enough for him. My church, in his opinion, was leading people astray. That's because I, the pastor, had not been baptized the right way. Now, what's the right way? Well, I was not baptized in the name of Jesus only. I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, because I was not baptized the right way, neither did I baptize other people the right way. And in fact, I was doing them no service at all by baptizing them as babies and not allowing them a chance to pick and choose whether they wanted to be baptized or not. And also that I served communion the wrong way insisting on the fact that it was truly the body and blood of Jesus Christ in, with, and under the bread and the wine, and a number of other things. Now, i got to tell you something. There's nothing wrong with debating theological or ideological differences. In fact, I'd encourage it. It's through debate and discussion where we arrive at the truth. But before we argue the fine points of any idea, let's first identify common grounds. 
those things that we both believe, that we both aspire to. And this presents, it prevents us from kind of demonizing another person whose opinion is different than our own. Listen to a quote from John Wesley. He said, though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike. May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion. Without all doubt, we may. Herein, all the children of God may unite, notwithstanding these smaller differences. So you see this in the New Testament approach to evangelism. Two weeks ago, we looked at the story of Cornelius, a God-fearing uh, non-Jew who had done many things to help the Jews in his community. Now, when Peter talked to him, he pointed out their co- the common ground. The common ground that Jesus went about doing good and we should do the same. If you look at Paul's uh, sermon on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, the Bible says that as he walked through that area, he was greatly distressed at the presence of all of the idols in the city, but he did not start by attacking them and all of their idols. Instead, when he was finally given an opportunity to speak, he said, it's pretty obvious you guys are religious. You built so many altars to so many deities that you even got one up over here for the unknown God. Could I tell you a little bit about this unknown God? And then he told them about Jesus. And when he told them about Jesus, he even quoted some of their philosophers to bring the message even more to bear. Now, in both of these cases in which people were brought to know Jesus, he, they didn't start with, hmm, you're not one of us. They began, let's look at the common ground we share. See, in dealing with anyone and everyone, Jesus would call us to say, you know, look, how are we the same? What goals, core beliefs, what dreams and ideas do we have? And then maybe we should start thinking more about what we're for instead of what we're against. I don't know if you've noticed that, how people often define themselves by who they are not rather than by who they are. I know people in churches who do that. You know, they'll actually say, oh, you're the one that baptized babies. See, that's the way to point out that you're different from us. And now I've got an edge on you. Or, oh, we're the church that does the following. See, they define what they don't believe rather than what they do believe. They define themselves by what they're against rather than what they are for. Now, sadly, we're entering into that time of year, years, it's called the presidential election. Now, I don't want to talk a whole lot about politics. I'm going to go back about a decade or so. Uh, in 2004, George W. Bush was running for re-election. He was not very popular with the media, and he was not especially, or he was especially unpopular with what we call Hollywood celebrities. I can still remember watching an interview with Madonna, you know, great political spokesman woman uh, on television in which she was outspoken in her criticism of George W. The interviewer said, so then, do you support John Kerry? Now, her response was, well, what choice do I have? I certainly don't support Bush. And I remember thinking to myself, how proud the Kerry camp must be to hear this endorsement. It was like she was saying, vote for John Kerry because the other, what other choice do you have? See, the whole campaign was more about being against George Bush than it was about being for John Kerry. 
Now, sadly, I see this in the Christian community as well. Some churches are defined by what they don't do and what they don't believe. Some ministries are defined by who, by who they're against. In fact, when you do church consultations, it's kind of interesting to go into a community and ask people, for example, have you ever heard of St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Mineral Wells? You'd be surprised how many people would probably tell you no. You go, really? Now, I'm, I'm not picking on this church. I've done that with a lot of churches. They've never heard of the church. Or if they say, yeah, and you ask them, what do you know about them? They will always talk about what that church is against. Oh, that's the church that doesn't let anybody dance. Or that's the church that doesn't believe in gay marriage. Or that is the church that, you know, they're all a bunch, whole bunch of right-to-lifers or something like that. We separate people out again. Now, see, some people spend their entire life pointing out who they think is wrong. Uh, and you could name just about any well-known Christian popular preacher or teacher or best-selling Christian author, and you can probably find a website that will tear that person completely apart. Now, I don't agree with every television preacher or every Christian author, what they say or do, but I'm not going to make it my life's work uh, to tell them how I think they're wrong. See, I would rather be for Jesus. I would be rather for what Jesus is about, what Jesus has called us to do, than against any church or against any denomination or any preacher or any politician. I'd rather spend my life building disciples rather than tearing down people that I disagree with. But here's what's so tempting to do, and it's to define yourself by what you're against. This is part of our sinful nature. Because it attracts a lot of sensation and attention. It's a little phrase that goes this way. Hate sells. You know that hate sells. I saw this recently on Facebook. It said, nothing brings two people together faster than the hatred of a third person. Isn't that sad? See, collective hate draws a crowd. But the problem is it always draws the wrong crowd. It tends to attract those who are critical and condescending rather than people who are compassionate and caring. It tends to draw people who like to point fingers, not those who are ready to roll up their sleeves and get involved in the cause of Jesus Christ. See, you can't make a positive difference in this world as a Christ follower if you define yourself as only a person who's against other stuff. The question all of us need to ask is, what are you for? I mean, ask yourself that. As a Christian, as a Lutheran Christian, what are you for? What would you stand up for? I mean, who are you for? And then surround yourself with people who are for the same things you're for. That's what churches do. There's a third part of this, and that's focus more on the majors and less on the minors. That's what the early church did. Um, in fact, verse 33 says, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to what? To the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Do you ever notice that there's all kinds of churches out there? Do you have any idea how many there are out there? I looked this up. World Christianity, we're talking about Christians worldwide, consists of six what they call major ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastical cultural blocks. In other words, they separate them into six categories of independence, Protestants, which would include Lutherans, marginals, Orthodox, 
Roman Catholic, and Anglican. Those six major groupings are divided into 300 major ecclesiastical traditions which compose 33,000 distinct denominations in 238 different countries. That's how fragmented we are. Now, you might say, oh, thank God we're just Lutheran. There are 49 different Lutheran denominations just in America. You think we're solid? We fragmented ourselves, too. 49 Lutheran denominations. These denominations are, you know, they have over almost 4 million different places to worship. Now, while we're all different in a little way, there's no doubt about it, the overwhelming majority of the differences, when you come down to it, don't really add up to much. That's because on the most important issues, Christian churches tend to, com- uh, tend to be in complete agreement on this, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and through him we have forgiveness of sins and we are saved by his grace. That's called majoring on the majors. That's what's important. What am I for? Well, I'm for telling people Jesus is for the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. I'm for saying and sharing with other people. I have no problem with anybody else who also says, and I acknowledge that he's risen from the dead. We've got forgiveness of sins through Jesus. We're saved by his grace. Now, you've got a few churches around this church. You've got one right there. Got another one right there. I've driven around town. You got one about every three blocks in this town. You're not unusual. We can disagree on a couple of points of doctrine here or there, but we can agree on what's most important. I have a feeling I could go from Christian church to Christian church and by and large find agreement. Jesus is Lord. He's alive. And through him, broken lives can be put back together again. We may have different music. We may have different preaching. Pastors may wear different clothes. People in church may sit in different ways. I don't know. Some have pews. Some have chairs. Some, Who knows what they do? See, in a marriage, in a family, in a friendship, in a workplace, it's easy sometimes to lose sight of what it is that we have in common. We're so interested in how we're not like other people that we almost forget who we are and what we really believe. Now, I once had a couple in my office whose marriage was... I'd say kind of on the brink of divorce. It's ready to fall apart. Now, I'm not a, uh, a marriage counselor. I'm not a licensed counselor. I, I'm not necessarily, I've, I've been married a long time, but I'm not necessarily an expert on marriage. And usually in these severe cases, I, I, my role is really to talk to the couple a little bit, to pray with them, and then to try to urge them to find some sort of a qualified, certified Christian counselor that can work with them. But this situation with this couple was so obvious that anyone could have identified the problem. You wouldn't have to be a wizard to figure this one out. During the meeting, I remember the wife said, I cannot stand to be in the same room with this man. I said, really, why not? She said, because he clears his throat all the time. Every five minutes, he clears his throat. I just want to scream. Now, I said, really? And I said, so he's just a total bum. She said, oh my, don't call him that. 
She said, he's a good provider, and he's a good dad, and I, I got to tell you, he's an attentive husband. But I tell you, this is driving me up the wall. And she had similar little complaints about that, that he often cut his toenails in the living room, although she acknowledged that he did pick them up and vacuum the floor. Now, I just say, married people can probably understand this. You get so focused on the one little annoying thing that sometimes you don't, Notice the many good things or the great qualities. All you hear is the sniffing or the throat clearing or the lip smacking or the belching or the snoring or whatever it may be. See, if, if all you see are the little things, you miss out on what really matters in whatever relationship. That's called majoring on the minors. And you can't see what's important, what really matters. And many people spend their entire lives focused on things of secondary importance. Not only in relationships, but in everything they do. I mean, there are some people who choose a career based solely on how much money they can make, rather than how much good they can do. Some people choose a husband or wife um, based on um, their outward appearance, rather than their character. Some people spend money based on how others will perceive them rather than what's the best use of our assets. Some people actually will pick a church based on how entertaining the church services are rather than based on what the church is striving to accomplish in God's kingdom. It's tempting, isn't it, for us to go through life kind of majoring on the minors. But if you do, individually and as churches, I say you're not going to make a lasting mark. You might accumulate things, you might win an argument here or there, but that's about it. As someone once said, you, you never get inducted into the Major League Hall of Fame if you spend your entire time in the minors. So as an individual and as a church, we need to focus our time and energy on what matters most. Major on the majors. You know, or otherwise you go through life saying one of these things is not like the others, one of these things doesn't belong. But before we can separate or exclude anyone, we always need to ask, how are we the same? Is there a common ground? Is there a common belief? Is there common goals? Can we use these things as a starting point? It has even been said that when you get, uh, well, the question is, what do you get when you put two Lutherans together? You get three different opinions. (laughs) Now, that may even be true here at St. Mark's. I don't know. But while we may not agree point for point on every single matter. Like, like I said before, we can all love alike. We, can't, we can all be of one heart and one mind. That's because being of one mind doesn't mean that we all have the same opinion, but that we all see the same big picture through the eyes of Jesus. See, there's power in being united as a body of Christ, using the common ground to share with one another as we make our mark as Christ followers in this world. I want to end by just reading you part of chapter 4 of Ephesians. Because it kind of sums up the whole idea of having common ground again. Knowing where we stand and where we stand leads us to what we are able to do. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Is that interesting? All of us here have been called by God, by the Holy Spirit, into a family of, of followers of Jesus. It says that we, we should walk in a manner, it says, with all humility and with all gentleness, with patience, bearing 
with one another in love, eager to maintain what? The unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body. There is one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Then he goes on and he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers. God gave gifts to the church, he said, to equip the saints. Now, who are the saints? Well, it's you. I don't know if you ever thought of yourself as St. Nancy. <laughs> I don't know about that. Or, or St. Vic. I don't know if you ever thought about that. But you are all saints. He said, what, to, to equip the saints for what? For the work of ministry. Now, what is ministry? Ministry is whatever you do for someone else in the name of Jesus, whether it's in the church or outside the church. And you're doing this, what, to build up the body of Christ, not to separate it out, not to identify who's not with you, but to build up the body of Christ until, what, we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And I think about that. Sometimes we spend so much time being critical of other people that we really don't know what we believe. One of the things I've always thought is why people don't like to share their faith more because they're afraid they're going to, get, they're going to be asked a question. And they're not, know, not going to know how to answer it. Oh, yours is the church. You baptize babies. Why is that? Uh, 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 uh. Oh, you guys, you believe that's actually the body and blood of Jesus? Why is that? Uh, well, um, um, our pastor told us so. <laughs> Do you know? Well, sometimes we spend so much time studying all kinds of other nonsense, we don't know what it is we truly believe. It says he, he doesn't want us to be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried by every wind of doctrine. You don't have to listen to much on television. You don't have to watch much news. Don't have to listen to too many things on the radio to realize that things in this world today, even as they've been since the beginning of time, are not in alignment with the pure word of God. And because people do not know what's in the word of God, guess what? They get suckered into every silly, goofy belief that you can find. I sometimes shudder when I go through Facebook, for example, I'm going to step on somebody's toes with this one. That's okay. I'm only the interim. <laughs> but, you know, it said, if you don't believe a dog has a soul, look into its eyes, and you'll believe. And I'm thinking, I can't find any. Dogs are wonderful animals, but I'm sorry, your dog does not have a soul. Or I know that my grandfather's up in heaven watching over me. Mm, I think if your grandfather or another relative is up in heaven watching you, probably is pretty disappointed. It'd be pretty sad. And I don't think heaven's a place. The heaven it says that's a place where there's no weeping or crying or feeling sorry or sad. They're up in heaven rejoicing. But you know we've heard other people tell us that, so we just kind of bind it. Or you know, Uncle John died, and now God's got another angel. Sorry. God already has enough angels. Sealed them at one point after the fall. When you get to heaven, you will not sprout wings. 
you will not play a harp or a piano. Now, I may play a saxophone, but that's... No, I'm not going to play that either. I'm just going to rejoice in God's presence. See, he wants us to grow up into maturity, focusing on what are the core beliefs, what we really believe. It says we're not going to be carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness or deceitful schemes. Rather, what do we do? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in him in every way who is the head into Christ. Each and every day to be more and more like Jesus. You know, we're not called Biblians. We are called Christians. We follow Christ. Now, his teachings are, of course, in the Bible. And it says, from whom the whole body, that's you and me, joined all together by every joint which is equipped, each part is working properly, helps make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God grant that we focus on what he's called us to be, his children, and may we focus on what God has called us to do, his disciples who make disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.